Friends, we have almost made it through the book of Ephesians. And I've got to tell you, like no other week, this week is good proof that all we have done is jet skied across the surface of this book. If you're wondering, ah, oh, we're done with Ephesians. Friends, no, we are not. There is so much more in there. In fact, this week, I can't even unpack everything with the time that we have. Praise be to God, because we have Mexican that is waiting for us outside. So my encouragement is, I hope this series has wet your taste buds for Scripture. I hope this series has, has pulled you deeper to understand the Word of God. And today, I hope you're excited to step into Ephesians chapter 11 as we look at how the gospel changes community. Having said that, I was thinking about what we've been doing the last couple weeks in Ephesians, and I was reminded of what I was like in school. When I was in school, I was that guy who whenever the teacher brought in a new piece of work, you know, learning about hypotenuse, or when I learned about duty of care in legal studies, or when we learned about, I think I've said this before and got it wrong, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I think I got the formula right. Thank you, Aaron. I was the kid who popped up his hand and said, when are we going to need this in life? Hands up if you were one of those guys or girls. Yeah, a couple. I preached at Cool and Gatter this morning, blank faces and no hands raised. I'm like, what? I was frustrated in school. I'm like, who cares who Pythagoras was? I want to know how to date the girl next to me, who wasn't Sarah, so thankfully they didn't tell me. But, but there's this sense where you're like, when is this going to matter in life? And in school, the other question was, will this be on the exam? Really, what you're asking is, do I have to actually pay attention? How does this matter? How am I going to apply this? And I don't know about you, but one thing that I... Let me ask you a basic question. Has anyone here, past grade seven, actually used long division? Yeah, oh, there, there, was, there was two this morning as well. I said, how did you do long division? He was like, just for fun. I'm like, who's doing long division for fun? Because when I got to grade eight, they gave me a calculator. Stuff long division, I could just do it on a... Anyway, my year five would have been a lot better. And I realized sometimes we approach a lot of life like we approach long division. Why are we learning this? How do we apply it? Who needs to know? In fact, friends, sometimes I think we approach the gospel like we approach long division. It's something for a moment, not a life. Tim Hanna, a couple of weeks ago, came and said this. Uh, what is Christianity? What is the gospel? Is the gospel just a way to life or is it a way of life? And we can fall into the trap, like some of our subjects in school, thinking that the gospel is just a moment. But once we've heard it, once we've, we've received it and actioned it, then we have moved past it and no longer need it. I remember once, and I've said to some of you before, there was a man that once said to me that the gospel is nothing more than a doorway. That when you realize you need forgiveness, when you realize that you have done stuff wrong, when you realize that you need a clean slate and a chance to start over, the gospel is merely the doorway you walk through and then you never need it again. And I cannot tell you, friends, how wrong that is. Because the gospel is not a moment where we come and ask Christ for forgiveness. The gospel, friends, is the good news. That the good and perfect world that was created at the start of all things, that mankind wrecked by our selfishness and our sin, God has a plan enacted through Jesus Christ to come and forgive and set things right, that one day all things will be made new and redeemed, and He's starting with your life. This is the gospel we respond to, but it's not something we respond to once Unlike long division, it's always got application. 
I realize there's a math teacher in the room who's going to come talk to me afterwards. That's okay. We have prayer ministry over to the side. That joke sometimes gets old. There's this sense that we approach the gospel in the wrong light. And this is the heart of Ephesians. See, Ephesians, the first three chapters is all about what is the gospel. And the last three chapters is all about gospel application. How now shall we live? In fact, I read a book once by a guy named Charles Colson. And Charles Colson, who wrote this book under that same title, How Then Shall We Live, says this. It'll be the third slide in money. He says that Christians are battle-weary. We are tempted to withdraw into the safety of our sanctuaries, to keep busy by plugging into every program offered by our mega churches or churches, hoping to keep ourselves and our children safe from the mounting destruction. But if we concentrate on just church things, we ignore our responsibility to redeem the culture, and our faith remains privatized and marginalized. What does this mean? It means that every part of our life is meant to be changed and transformed by the power of the gospel. So much so that it changes and transforms the world around us. Friends, there's no greater question than for those of you who have chosen to be a follower of Christ to ask, how now shall I live in light of the gospel? And this is what Paul seeks to answer. It's what, what Anna challenged us with last week when she spoke that God wants us to walk as children of light, to know his will, to find out what pleases him, that we might know and walk with him. In fact, the last part of last week's verse starts with this, where Paul says, hey, be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you know a community is filled with the Holy Spirit? Because they'll speak to each other in psalms. They'll sing to each other in hymns and sing spiritual songs over each other. It's this idea of worship that bubbles up from a Holy Spirit community. But there's actually another qualifying factor for a community that has let the gospel be more than just a momentary application but something they allow to affect every part of their life. See, Paul says, if the gospel has transformed you, if the Holy Spirit is in you, then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, you will see a community that looks like this, that that community will submit to one another. Maybe on the next slide. Out of reverence for Christ. That this community, marked by the Holy Spirit, transformed by the gospel, submits to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, when I hear the term submit, I remember a game I used to play in school. I don't know if anyone else used to play it called Mercy. Does anyone else remember the game called Mercy? Yeah, some of you. Some of you had really problematic childhoods because you know what this means. It's when you would come along. I'd do it with Calvin if I thought I could win, but I can't. So what happens in Mercy is you come and you grab someone's hands, and the idea is that you twist their arms and their hands until one of you has to submit in pain and say, Mercy! And then the other person's like, I win! And, and sometimes when we hear the word submit, we think that this is what it means. It's like the subjugation of another because one person is stronger. And unfortunately, this is actually not what Paul is referencing when he says submit to one another. He's not reinforcing of workout power structures and who is stronger and who isn't. He's not trying to say, hey, some of you are, are leaders and others just submit. See, when we're sitting here and going, who should submit in Christian community? Who should submit to one another? Who actually has to do that? Paul responds unequivocally that it is all of you. Every single one. That if you're filled by the Holy Spirit, if you believe Jesus is the Lord of your life, if you want to live out the gospel, submit to one another. And still, maybe you're thinking, this means 
someone has authority and someone doesn't. That that's what it means. But Paul doesn't equivocate it with that. He just leaves it submitted to one another. Why? Out of reverence, out of holy awe and fear of who Jesus is and what he does. He calls us into this story. See, when we see submitting to one another as an issue of power, we enter from the wrong starting point. To submit to others is to place others' needs above your own. To place others' desires, others' wants, others', others, others hopes and dreams above yours. It's to lay down your life as Christ did for the sake of the other. Now this is a beautiful picture of what Christian community could be. Friends, our lives are called to rehearse the gospel in such a way where when we submit to one another, people who walk through those doors, who do not know Jesus, who do not know the gospel, are confused by the level of loving, selfless sacrifice present in this community. Every week here at United Brisbane, there are people who walk through those doors who do not know Jesus and do not know the gospel. And they do not look at Scripture as their first evidence of what the gospel is, friends. They look at us. Which means that there is a call on our lives that we recognize that the world is watching and is intrigued by how we are letting this play run out. And they want to know that there is a greater actor, a greater director, and a greater God, and His name is Jesus. We are all called to submit. So you may be a follow, not yet a follower of Christ today. Maybe it's your first time in church in such in a long time. Or maybe you're a Christian today. What Paul begins to offer us is a vision of what it looks like when a community of Christ followers take this seriously. That we are not called into one submitting and another not. No, the term is we are called into mutual submission. That every one of us would lay aside our desires, our dreams, our hopes, and our selfishness and promote the other above ourselves, just as Christ did. Therefore, I believe this means that every Christian life should do three things. It should point to the gospel, live out the gospel, and need the gospel. Every Christian life points to the gospel. Every Christian life should live out the gospel. And every Christian life should desperately every day need the gospel to empower us to live this life of mutual submission. Ephesians 5 verse 21 is the crucial text for understanding everything that comes next. It's the key. Ephesians 5 verse 21 is submission to one another. It helps us frame what Paul's about to talk about. Because what Paul does, like any great teacher, he tells us a principle and then he applies it. And he applies it in three areas. He says, you want to know what it looks like for this mutual, selfless, loving, sacrificial submission to play out? Well, this is what it looks like in marriage. This is what it looks like in the family. And this is what it looks like in the workplace. What Paul is identifying here is the gospel changes community. Gospel changes how we function and how we breathe. Now, today, unfortunately, I, I like divided up the text. And I was like, oh, yeah, we'll be able to touch on each of those three things in a 30-minute. Now, anyone who's heard me preach before know how impossible that's going to be. So what we're going to do is we're going to use this case study of marriage to see how Paul applies the gospel to one of these community environments. Now, having said that, some of you are not yet married. Some of you, that's a hope you have for the future. Some of you have been married. For some of us, marriage is a painful topic. Some of you are married and are right in the middle of this, of this, what it looks like. But here's what I'd offer. 
If we are a community who submit our wants and desires laying down for someone else, we do not have to be experiencing a stage of life to be able to lean in and hear what the gospel says about it. Because we're wanting to encourage and walk through this journey with all those who are married or one day will be married. And this is what Paul seems to unpack. This is beautiful. So, wherever you're at today, married, unmarried, hoping to be married, never want to get married the rest of your life, what I want to do is place that to the side for a moment and lean in to see how Paul casts a vision of how the gospel applied to a relational dynamic and how this plays out. Now, there's a whole bunch of checks... Text. There's a whole bunch of text coming your way, so stay with me. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, and he writes straight after, Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul continues on and says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her, washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Let me say it again, because that is the second central text for understanding the importance of what we're about to discuss. This marriage is a profound ministry, mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So just for a moment, let's pause and recognize some of us are already wishing they didn't come to church today. They're like, man, so we're talking about the patriarchy. We're re-supporting this stuff. I didn't know it was going to be about this. I don't, I don't know where I sit with that. And I want to suggest that, that, that lean in for a moment. Because what I want to do is not justify your concerns. I want us to park those that, that are worried about this text being oppressive. And maybe just put those on hold for a moment. And instead, come with me and just as best we can ask the question, what is the vision that Paul is casting for marriage here? What's the vision? Let's start there and not read this text through culture, but let this text prompt us how we might be redeemers in culture. So let's do that. So I think what Paul highlights here is that Christian marriage does three things. It points to the gospel, it lives out the gospel, and it needs the gospel. Christian marriage points to the gospel. Now, David Brooks, a New York Times uh, writer, said this, that in the West today, there are three dominant thoughts about marriage. The first is, is that marriage is a psychological construct, which means that people get married so that there is functional compatibility. This idea of does he, does he or she earn enough money? Do they, uh, do they have the fitness lifestyle that I like? Are they functionally compatible with where I see my life heading? There's this like psychological component to the way that some of the West views marriage. A really helpful understanding of how this plays out would be married at first sight. Hands up if you watch that show. That was not a moment. You should have put your hand up. I'm kidding. I've seen it. My wife and I have uh, watched it once 
or twice. There's, and, and there's this thing on the show where they get these psychologists. It's a horrible show. I won't, I've talked about it before, so I'm not going to go there again. But they get psychologists to pair people up who have never met one another and then marry each other. And the whole premise of the show is psychological compatibility is the thing which should drive whether or not something should work. If you've seen the show or haven't seen the show, spoilers alert, it rarely ever works. The second way that the West views marriage is romantic. That search for the other is romantic and that romance is the highest ideal. This is essential to, to, to so much how the West views the church. It's the notebook narrative or insert whatever your favorite chick flick narrative is in there. Mine's the notebook. Shout out to everyone that's a fan with me. The problem with this is, for those of you who are not yet married, this seems attractive. It's like, I can't wait. It's so beautiful. I can't wait to wake up every day with butterflies in my stomach and have someone cook me breakfast or cook someone breakfast or have someone, we buy Uber Eats for breakfast and this would be amazing and it's beautiful and, and I can just see it all playing out. And then there's those of you in the room who are actually married. And you're like, huh, right. Because you know, romance and psychological compatibility are important but not central. Now, I love my wife, and romance is deeply important to both of us. But if you ask her, romance is not the thing which keeps us together. Because what happens when your psychological compatibility fades? Like, just think about anything that might be able to deteriorate someone's psychological compatibility with you. Does your marriage fade with it? Or when the romance becomes hard, does that mean that the vows become conditional? But see, the third aspect, as David Brooks writes, is that the moral lens is the other way that marriage can be seen. That marriage should serve a higher purpose and point to a greater narrative. I think this is the Christian understanding. That marriage serves a higher purpose and points to a greater marriage. See, knowing the end goal of marriage would dictate how we prepare for and choose and step into the marriage covenant at all. See, Paul's argument is predicated on the idea that Ephesians 5 verse 21 is central. And so you've got to hold on to Ephesians 5 verse 21 as we walk ahead. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We know this because what's interesting in Ephesians 5 verse 22, when Paul, when it seems in English it says, wives submit to your husbands, in the original Greek, that word submit is not actually there. It's wives unto your husbands as to the Lord. The reason why it's written in, in English is often to connect 5 verse 21 to 5 verse 22, that it's meant to be the same thought. I've loved this, and, and some of you are like, oh, you know, this is helpful. Let me tell you how it became so helpful for me. I've spent the last three days with Alex Stark nutting over this text and pouring it over together. And I've got to say, he has so helpfully unpacked it for me in a way that I have not seen some of its truth before. That's what makes me so excited for him to be your pastor. Because he has helped and led and challenged me to go deeper than just a surface reading of the text. Shout out to you, brother. Now he's still there. And, and, and the biblical framework for marriage is far more sacred and holy than merely a romantic lifelong companionship. But still, some of you are sitting here today, and you're going, hang on, wait. Wives, submit to your husband? Have you met my husband? Here he is. Like, do you want to meet him? Like, that's hard for me. And some of you who are husbands are like, I have to lay down my PlayStation for my wife? Are you kidding me? It's like we, we, we get concerned. So what's happening here? Well, this is important. We've got to understand context so we can understand what's going on. Paul was writing this, this uh, letter to the Ephesians from a prison in the middle of Rome. As Paul's writing to the Ephesian church, you, we've got to recognize he's a political prisoner. And so as Paul's writing to a church, 
the guards and officials would have been reading his letters. This is agreed upon by most commentators. They, they, would, they would understand this. So he has to write stuff in a way which it's not going to necessarily revolutionize the, the Roman Empire, but still communicate truth to those who are receiving it. Why is that important? Because at the time of Paul's writing, the Roman Empire is in a marriage crisis. Marriages are breaking down, and the Roman Empire believed that marriages were essential for the flourishing, the economic and spiritual flourishing of a society. And as marriages were breaking down, there was this rise in women who were sick of being seen as possessions and all power to them, because that's important. And they were rising up. They were offering divorces to their husband, which had never been done before. Some of them were going so far as to becoming quite violent and going out on hunting raids and all this stuff. And it was just like marriage itself was becoming this juxtaposition between the patriarchy and women equality movement. And so what Rome did is Rome began to bring in stricter rules around keeping the marriage unit together. In fact, if you were single for too long, you would get fined in, in, in some parts of the Roman Empire. Other parts you could get fined for even wanting or issuing a divorce because the Caesar at the time was trying to protect the marriage unit. Now we might be like, oh right, like, you know, that seems like a nice thing to do. However, you've got to recognize the marriage unit wouldn't be something that many of us would agree was a healthy thing. See, back in those days, the understanding of marriage was built on a Greco-Roman understanding of marriage based a lot on the philosopher Aristotle's work. And Aristotle wrote this, the strength of man is in showing command. Strength of a woman in obeying. This was the Greco-Roman understanding of marriage. And the reason why I say this is because this idea of male commanding and women obeying was not a Christian construct. It was celebrated and pervasive in the world. So as Paul is writing, he's writing to Roman officials who are looking for support for the Greco-Roman ideal of the marriage unit that needs to be supported, that men command and women obey. So what Paul does here, and this is, this is where Alex Stark came in. He gave me language that was so beautiful. Paul is not reinforcing the Greco-Roman understanding of marriage. He's not supporting it. But he also can't be revolutionizing against it because he's trying to pastor a community and needs this letter to get through. So what he does is he subverts it. He subverts it. He changes the definitions of what it looks like for these two things to be at play. He's trying to say, hey, guys, Jesus is bringing a new way for this thing to come about. So when we're reading these ideas of submission and authority and, and, and obedience, you've got to understand Paul is trying to get a letter through to his people about how the gospel changes everything, and it's good news. This is essential to understanding the ancient Christian uh, framework of marriage because there are two kinds of perspectives in the room. When we hear this text, there's some of us who are fundamentalists, fundamental right wings, or maybe, maybe that's, that's something that you most uh, like align with, where you read this text and be like, that's exactly how it should be. Men are given the strength to command and women should obey. Or there's this other side over here where we're, you know, this progressive, maybe liberal understanding where you've seen women treated terribly and then you're sitting and going, no, female economy, uh, female equality, moral autonomy is so important, separate but equal kind of a thing. And what I'd suggest is that Paul's writing actually challenges both. It challenges both equally, calls us back to a center where he offers something different. Paul, on the surface, is reinforcing the dominant stereotype, yet beneath the surface highlights how the gospel subverts it all together. John Tyson, your boy, you know it's a Michael Hans sermon when you've got a reference from John Tyson. There's two of them tonight. says this, marriage in the Christian church is about giving up of one's own rights for the other. 
Now, you might be like, well, Michael, Paul doesn't seem to be talking about mutual submission here. Let me show you where Paul does talk about mutual submission. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, we read Paul comment to the marriage couple about their relationship together. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, for those of you who are on this side of the argument, you're like, what? And for those on this side, we'd be like, yes. However, notice the very next line. In the same way, not less, the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This is not some possessive legal possession. It's mutual submission. When you come before someone else and say, all I have is yours, there isn't someone that gets to offer less of that than the other in Christian marriage. It's mutual submission, friends. It's coming together, the laying down of our life. And hearing this passage especially, men would have walked out going, what the heck? And this was crucial. Paul subverts. Paul offers a new way. No longer did the man own the woman, but rather the marriage partnership was a willing subjection of giving of self to the other. Oh, what a beautiful image. See, if marriage is about mutual submission, why then does Paul go on to reinforce gender stereotypes that seem to be oppressive? Well, the first understanding um, would be that he is actually trying to make sure that he's not seen to be revolutionizing the gender stereotypes of the day. But the second is to call back the different parts of the gender influences and where they've gone in that society in that moment. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus where there was the cult of Diana, where there was a really poisonous cult that was led by women who were oppressive and they were harmful and they were violent. And there was this sense where Paul is calling women back from moral autonomy from the other and saying moral autonomy is not the way of Christ. It's actually dependence, interdependence, and mutual submission. This is why Paul emphasizes this understanding of the women relying on the male coming into a symbiotic union again of mutual submission. But then he comes over, and in fact, Paul insinuates that the wife's submission to the husband is not enforced servitude. In fact, the Bible product put it like this, the woman allows the husband's role. It's not forced it's a sense of power that is submitted. The woman is not forced into his servitude, but autonomous, sacrificial love. The laying down of autonomy and willful submission to another, as Ephesians 5 verse 21 recommends. But here's the interesting thing. Paul spends more time talking about males than he does about women. He comes in and he says that there's this, there seems to be this unhealthy, oppressive, patriarchal culture. And so Paul steps in and he talks directly to it because in those days, women were seen as little more than possessions. Women had no rights and no future outside of male partnership. So he redefines authority and power. Paul actually spends his most time redefining the male role of headship. He does not call for the husband to rule, but to love. He steps into the stereotype and he uses the gospel to challenge it. Your boy Johnny comes back again. He says the heart of Paul's message is to speak into a social framework that points to mutual submission where husbands are not told how to rule their wives, yet how to love them. Never does Paul say to the husband, command your wife. Instead, what does he continually say? Love her, love her, love her, love her, as Christ loved the church. The male's role is not to run the family out of selfish, ambitious need, but to lay his life down for the woman. If a husband is oppressive, controlling, self-serving, dishonest, and manipulative, and abusive, then let me be frank, he is walking in sin. And that is not the biblical framework. 
So too, if the woman is oppressive, controlling, self-serving, dishonest, and manipulative, she is walking in sin, and that is not the biblical framework. It is a laying down of our life for the other Timothy Keller says in Ephesians 5, Paul shows us that even on earth, Jesus did not use his power to oppress, but sacrificed everything to bring us into union with him. And this takes us beyond the philosophical to the personal and the practical. If God had the gospel of Jesus' salvation in mind when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that it approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love in Christ. What's he saying here? Friends, the purpose of marriage isn't just that I might enjoy hanging out with Sarah for the rest of my life, even though she's a lot of fun to hang out with. I'm blessed to be married to her. The greatest purpose my marriage can serve is that when other people engage with how Sarah and I love each other, they are confused as to why it works except for the gospel. That the only reason why this is functional isn't because I've got it together. You should ask her. She'll be like, it is for the grace of God that we are working. Right? Why? Because marriage is meant to reflect Christ and the church. It's meant to be a place where people step in and they go, why does this work? And we say, let me point you to the ultimate groom and the ultimate bride. And now Christ laid down his life for us. And he wants us to enjoy this marriage, but we get to point to something greater, to a groom that will never fail like I will fail. This is the point. It's this understanding of a greater narrative. Christian marriage should always point to the gospel, which means this, that if we're living in marriage, in fact, let me step back. There's a whole bunch of singles in the room. If people walk into your community, your small group, your workplace, or even how you interact with your family, from someone who is over hardcore on the right wing of the left progressive agenda or someone who might be over on the right wing of the conservative agenda, they should both be equally confused as to why it works. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes and calls us both not to an agenda but to a cross. And it's this understanding which is central to the Christian community that people should be like, why? Our marriages should reflect the gospel so much that it confuses anyone who doesn't know who Jesus is and what he has done. I love this week as I got to sit with Alex and just unpack this truth. Because guess what? It, it called me to love my wife deeper and better and in light of the gospel. And I pray, friends, that what this is calling you to, you may not be married, but to work out how are your relationships How are you living out submission to one another in reverence of Christ? Paul doesn't just apply this to marriage. He then goes on and applies it to family and to work. And now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go to those two, but you can. You should jump in a small group and do so this week that we might see, hey, the gospel is not long division. Praise God. The gospel is is the very power by which we are saved and transformed and live our everyday life. We are not only called to point to the gospel, but live it out. God intended marriage to be the vehicle which teaches us to love each other with the agape love of God and to lay our lives down for each other that we might finish the race, having helped the other become all that God has called them to be. But friends, you don't have to be married to step into this. This is Christian community. And if you are not yet a follower of Christ, I pray you would stick around long enough to see, friends, that this is meant to be a blessing to all those who do not yet know Jesus. 
But marriage, our life, our community doesn't just point to the gospel, doesn't just live out the gospel. Friends, it also radically needs the gospel. Because here's the truth. No matter if I've preached horribly or really well this afternoon, so many of us have failed at this. Maybe some of you here are married and you're like, Michael, my marriage doesn't reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of you are here or you're in small group and you're like, man, the way I act in small group is not actually a way that points to the gospel, it points to me. Maybe when you're at work, your boss sees you more as a curse than a blessing. Your family, your relationships, and, and we recognize we all fall so far short. Friends, we preach an ideal this afternoon, but here's also the practical that there is an admission by, by all the great writers that we will never do this perfectly, which is why we must be reminded this isn't long division, it's everyday oxygen to our lungs. The gospel is needed. I've told you this story before, but this is why for me, about five years ago when Sarah and I were in France on the Champs-Élysées in Paris, the city of love. After six months of us seeking our own selfishness and our own selfish ambition, we're like, we will just get to Paris and it will be great. Our marriage will be fine. Some of you know how this story plays out. We got to Paris, and the dysfunction bubbled up, and, 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 it, and it hurt. And in that moment, what we needed was not another marriage book. It wasn't advice. It wasn't to try harder. We needed the gospel. I remember my wife turned to me in our little apartment, which was really disappointing, and she said, honey, you just need to go away for three hours. I'm like, oh. But she's like, no, no, we need, we need to go be, be with God. We don't need each other right now. We need Jesus. I remember I went and got lost in the, cities of Paris, in, the, in, the, in the streets of Paris for about five hours. I was well over time, so I didn't know how to get home. So that was another fight. No. <laughs> and I remember we got back and we just cried. We were like, man, we're messed up. But here's the beauty. Friends, I don't know where you sit on male headship and, and, and female authority in marriage, but wherever you sit, here's the question you've got to ask. Does your relationship point to the gospel? Sure, unpack the text. Work out what you think about authority and who's in charge. That's not the point here. Does it live out the gospel? But more importantly, does it need the gospel? Do you run to the cross when you're in need? That's the way of the Christian life. Because that's the only thing that's kept Sarah and I going. It's the grace of Christ for ourselves that we might have it for each other. That's how we are bound together in Christian community. Now, for those of you aware, we have a great marriage. Please don't be worried. Like, we're doing really well. Second kid on the way. Call him Archer Junior. Junior. That wasn't a funny joke. <laughs> and I want to identify today that some of you are here and you know you need help. You're right where you should be. So here's how I want to finish. Would you stand with me this afternoon? The point of this mystery is this. This is a story of Christ and his church. Because the hope is not how you love someone, your partner, or how you're loved in community. The hope is how well we point to the reality of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and the future hope we have in the kingdom of God. So maybe you're here this afternoon and Ephesians 5 verse 21, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. It's challenging. You know what? You rocked up to church today and it was about you. 
You sat where it serves you to sit. You've engaged how it serves you to engage. Maybe it's about work tomorrow and you know that work is about you. Maybe it's about your marriage and your marriage is about you getting what you need and what you want. You know, I think compromise is a word used, overused word in marriage today. What if it wasn't about compromise, friends? What if it wasn't about, am I getting my rights? What if it was about, how do I die to myself? How do I submit that we might point others to Jesus? So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? As you're here this afternoon, I just want to ask if you're someone who's yet to know Jesus and you're, and you're struggling with this sense of, you know, making about others, but you are so desperate for a greater hope, a greater gospel, to repent of selfishness, of sin, of loneliness. I just want to ask, wherever you are on, on that spectrum of knowing Christ's suffering, if you want to know Him, you can. Would you just open your hands up in front of you? And maybe you're here this afternoon and, and maybe it's not marriage for you, but maybe it's an area of your life where it's like, I'm not living in mutual submission. It's more about me than it is about others. I'm an autonomous, independent person and you just sense Christ calling you, hey, listen, lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you sense this sense of conviction of Christ saying, hey, it's about me. It's about hope. It's about the gospel. It's not meant to be focused on someone who was never meant to play the part of the star of the story. If that's you this afternoon and you're a follower of Christ, I want you also to just open your hands in front of you. And Jesus, I just ask right now, at the end of it all, that this message wouldn't pull us into working out roles as much as it would point us towards your cross, your grace, your finished work. Lead us. For those who don't know you, Jesus, I pray we come before you in repentance and say, God, it's always been about me. It's time for a better narrative to emerge. If that's you this afternoon, all you have to do is repent and say, God, I'm sorry I choose to follow you as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. And he washes us clean and gives us a new chance, not, not a moment, but a new life. And if you're a Christian or you're a follower of Christ here this afternoon, I'd ask that you would just come and just open up your life and say, God, give me a fresh revelation. Father, give us a fresh revelation of Jesus, of his love for the church, for the people of God that we would imitate the narrative of the gospel with our life. Not for our glory, but for your glory and the good of the world. Transform us. Start with us. With our marriage, our relationships, our hopes, our dreams, our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, if God stirred something in you this afternoon, if you want prayer for something we've mentioned, or, or if you want prayer for something we haven't spoken about, healing, or someone to stand with you in a moment, then just over here, we're going to open up prayer. Calvin and Ella are moving over there now. You just come down and receive prayer.
Receiving prayer this afternoon doesn't mean anything other than there is something in your life you want us to stand with you before God and just ask for Him to move in. We'd love to offer that to you this afternoon. Before us all, we're going to sing a song now, which we've sung before many years ago here in United Brisbane. It's called Jesus at the Center of It All. Because that's our hope. That at the end of the day, Jesus would be the center of it all. Would you sing and join us in worship today?